CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Coin World Podcast. We are so glad that you're along with us on this journey right here. Typically, it's me who's talking first. I'm Larry Jewett. And this is Jeff Stark. Every week we talk about how great the episode is and all that, you know, the interview subject. But this is more than great. It's important because we got to speak with Justin Irvin, who is a collector, dealer. He's exploring the world of becoming a dealer while also managing uh, mental health challenges and uh, appropriately timed uh, for last week's Veterans Day, Justin Uh, is a veteran, and he has PTSD. And so we get to hear about his journey and how coins have really provided an outlet for him. And um, that was just so important to hear and so interesting, uh, we found. And I I think that uh, if you stay tuned, you will agree. Yeah, totally, because it's very insightful on the uh, the what he told us about and his experiences. And, you know, often we think about not just the coins themselves, but the people that are connected to them. The coins are objects, the people that are connected to them. We are emotional beings. We are who we are, and we have this attachment to things in our lives. And and when coins can provide that attachment and that stability sometimes, then that makes it even better. Want to give a shout out and to our sponsor for this week's podcast, and that is Coin World Plus. I just recently had an opportunity to watch one of the Newman Numismatic Portal uh, Symposium videos that uh, totally detailed uh, what the Coin World Plus process is all about. Of course, you can find out that complete information by going to coinworldplus.com and learn how you can get your slab coins to have that voice so that you can hear that voice. And right now, the only voices you're hearing are our voices, but later on, you're going to be hearing the voice of Justin Irvin. And again, thank you to all veterans, a belated thank you for your service and your continued service to this great country of ours that helped make things happen. During the course of the conversation we had with Justin recently, it it gave me the opportunity to think about uh, the military and the presence of the military on the coins. Now, I, I had a grandfather who served in World War II. I had an uncle who was in Vietnam. And I have a stepson currently serving in the United States Army at Fort Wainwright in Alaska. So consequently, you know, there's a lot of military thoughts going on in our lives as it is, uh, more so perhaps than some of the others. But the idea of the military on the coins, and what better timing than a recent story that appeared in this latest issue of CoinWorld magazine and also at CoinWorld.com concerning the idea that finally, after a couple of years, uh, thank you, pandemic, We're going to see the reality of the National Purple Heart Hall of Honor commemorative coins. They're going to be coming out uh, within a couple of months, as a matter of fact, as the designs have been revealed. And what a great tribute that is. The 1.8 million individuals who were uh, either lost in battle or wounded in battle. And uh, Justin even mentions the Purple Heart. uh, So give a listen for that. So I thought that was really neat timing and uh, really, really symbolic. And 
it just really struck a responsive chord. Absolutely. I mean, I think regardless of who you are, we have connections. I mean, my great grandpa served in World War One. Uh, and, you know, certainly we are all benefactors of the sacrifice. So that is on our minds uh, this week, today and every day, though. There's an enormous amount of commemorative coins that have come out in the last few years with military themes. And that speaks to the place that, um, you know, this reverence has in our society. And certainly, you know, if somebody introduces a bill in Congress, who's going to vote against a commemorative coin for a certain branch of service or, you know, group of, you know, whether it's medals for code talkers or whatever, you know, the, or the Filipino American heroes, or, you know, there's so, there's so many tangents that one could take this. And um, it's an important part of the, the modern coin arena and certainly uh, something that we think about and um, look at. I mean, last week was, was it the 246th anniversary of the Marines? And of course the Marine Corps is on a dollar, which, you know, sold out. And, and as I recall in 2005, they, um, or six, was it, uh, they actually increased the mintage before the coin was launched because they anticipated such great demand. And uh, so there's so many folks who have served and we remember their service through these coins and uh, appreciate them for that. So, And even the medals programs, because we have the military medals that are being made now. And mm-hmm. I think about, I mean, we have daily reminders, because not just the commemoratives and not just the medals. If you happen to get a quarter in change, the 2021 quarter with Washington crossing the Delaware, of course, that was a military maneuver done during the uh, American Revolution. Uh, if you happen to come across a... a Eisenhower was on the coin. Of course, the Washington, I mean, you've got the Washington on both sides of us, that general there being uh, taken care of. I think about, you know, I'm thinking about the importance of money during the Civil War, the idea of that uh, they had to raise the uh, raise money to pay for the troops and how that all, all figures into it, because it just it seems like every aspect of every chapter of American military history seems to be, uh, you know, commemorated in some way, in some form of money, and and fittingly so. And it's just like, you know, hopefully, you know, those of us who understand the importance of this, you don't necessarily have to be in favor of conflict, but to understand that conflict is inevitable, even between you and I sometimes. But still, the idea that, uh, you know, it's just there, and it is an important part of the fabric of this nation, and not just to this nation, I'm sure that you as a world world currency expert, you can tell me that there are, are military uh, references on world coins as well. Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many out there. And one of the things I think of immediately is go look at the catalog pages for Russia. And they have commemorated so many battles and victories and memorials and things. You know, Poland has some uh, some interesting coins with some soldiers on them in the 1960s and earlier. You have uh, Czechoslovakia did some stuff with, uh, you know, the anniversary of liberation from World War II. Uh, even the island of Jersey issued uh, liberation coins in 1954, I believe, and for the 10th anniversary, and then maybe 1984 for the 30th. And, you know, there's one could collect hundreds of, of world coins with military motifs on them. 
And this speaks to how coinage reflects what's important to the nation and the zeitgeist. And, you know, certainly in that post-World War II era, you know, the world was reshaped by that war. And in a small way that, you know, that trickled down to, to coinage. So um, there are so many examples, you know, all the different knights that are on Polish coins and, and other coins out there, battleship coins. Austria did a great thing with the, the um, Admiral Tegetoff and I could just go on and on and on. Nobody wants to listen to that rambling, but it's, it's a ripe area for exploration for somebody who's, if they just wanted to narrow it down. I mean, I did for our photo finish page in the monthly issue of coin world several months ago, I believe it was this year. There are like five or six coins that celebrate navies, world coins alone, everything from Pakistan and Ukraine. And uh, I don't know if, uh, well, Britain, they're the British Navy. And, you know, you can name a topic military or otherwise, and you can find world coins that uh, commemorate it. So for sure, it's a, a neat area to look at. Indeed. And just uh, appreciate all the service once again as we talk about that. I think it's time now to take a look uh, back in history. We mentioned how important military history really was, but uh, it's it's a good time to take a look back into the numismatic history to see what was going on right around this time in the month of November. I'm sure there's something very interesting happening. I do have a military-themed item. It wasn't going to be my choice, but I'll mention it first before going with my choice. And that was on November 19th, 1973. That was when Series 651 military payment certificates were withdrawn in Korea. It's a fascinating area of all the different military money that was issued. But that wasn't going to be my first choice until we started talking all military-wise. My first choice was going to be nothing to do militarily, but what happened on November 15th, 1938, that was when the Jefferson five cent coins were released to banks. Now that's awful late in the year for the 1938 coins. 38 was the year we had two nickels, right? The um, Buffalo or the Indian head five cent coin and then the Jefferson nickel. And consequently, 38, 38D nickels are command a, a premium price versus, say, 1958. So that was something that we feel, we still feel the effect of today, right? I mean, we see that that coin still in circulation, albeit, albeit with some, some design changes, but it's still the same alloy today as it was when it started. Yes, there were changes for war. Uh, but anyway, that was what jumped out to me from numismatic history. Those are the two things that I think are of uh, most of note. So let's go now into Coin World history to a year that has uh, significant meaning both to our guest, Justin Irvin, and also to you yourself. And I think that's going to be the year of 2000. And in fact, I don't think I know. It's going to be the year 2004. And queue up in the year 2004. Kind of, kind of like Conan O'Brien, but not, not quite. In the year 2004, what happened? We're looking at the November 15th issue. Uh, 2004 was the first year of uh, Justin's uh, service in the military. It was also the year that I joined the coin world ranks. 
And I had joined as a full-timer early that year in February. Later this year, a story that is still sort of felt today. We talked about this item uh, back uh, around the 9-11 anniversary. But this was two stories relating to the National Collector's Mint sales of 2004 Freedom Tower silver dollars. Uh, That was an issue that was uh, raised thanks to then Attorney General Elliot Spitzer, New York State Attorney General, and um, National Collectors Mint ultimately lost the case and had to pay uh, a fine and, and offer refunds and all that. These items were not officially dollars because they were issued by Northern Mariana Islands, uh, which didn't have legal authority to issue money because they're part of uh, America, uh, America's holdings anyway. And uh, there were two stories in here from my late, uh, well, one of them from my late friend, Derek Von Klinger. The other is not bylined, but maybe he wrote it. I don't know. And um, it's just about that whole fiasco and, and the, um, the, the court cases and the proceedings and all that. It's, it's, that was what was mo- to me most interesting because occasionally you'll see these pop up and, you know, they are kind of neat as commemoratives of something, you know, the, on the reverse, it says, we will never forget. And, uh, you know, it shows what would be the Freedom Tower on the obverse and the reverse show the Twin Towers before they were attacked. And I myself have an example of this piece. You know, it's just a, a reminder of the way the world changed on that day and certainly the loss that we felt as a nation and um, as a people. And uh, certainly, you know, I can I can understand that, uh, you know, there was maybe some, maybe some exploitation for commercial gain as far as in some people's minds, but it certainly is a piece that has meaning. And uh, so I value it for that. And and I have it just like I have the U.S. Mint's National 9-11 medal. So Anyway, that was what jumped out at me. What did you find on the letters page, Larry? A lot of times I look for the feel-good letters, and I have no problem finding a couple of them right here on that particular issue because this one's called Heart of Gold. It says, over the last few years, it has become increasingly difficult for younger collectors to obtain even low-grade coins at fair prices. In the early 1970s, when I was a kid, I was lucky enough to have a husband and wife coin dealer team in the neighborhood who helped me fill my Whitman books with low-grade coins at below their cost. I spent many hours at their store and learned a lot about coins. I've not forgotten their kindness, and today I give out free coins to younger collectors. In trying to locate affordable collector coins, I contacted more than 100 coin dealers, and only a handful responded. One dealer cared enough to come through was Dale Larson of Spectrum Numismatics. He sent many coins and supplies at less than what he paid for them. On Halloween, I plan to give out free coins and watch children's faces light up with delight. And that was from Lance Harbridge out of Elk Grove, California. I think about how uh, Dennis Tucker sometimes will do that, put these uh, coins out at random so that uh, folks can find them. Another great letter in my mind is called Back at Collecting. As a person who did leave the hobby and is getting back into it, I had to laugh at Q. David Bauer's column, says, what kind of collector are you? Mr. Bowers hit the nail on the head. Well, that in itself is not news, but still. I did leave the hobby, as Mr. Bowers stated, as a three-year enlistee when I sold part of my collection 
a thing I kick myself for now. On the other hand, I did as a lifetime member does buy by buying a few books, including a few of the bigger books. I also delved deeply into the history of coins that I was collecting. I think this time I'll stick with it as I never stopped thinking about coins or collecting them. I even bought a publication now and then, just did not take part in collecting for about 10 years. Now I have my sights set on two particular collections I want to build and I'm going at it in a planned and meticulous way. Wish me luck. Well, good luck, Tony Perota, and the address was withheld. So here again, it's the idea that sometimes, you know, a lot of collectors will start out, then drop it off for a while. Life gets in the way, and I think that actually happened with Justin, and he'll be telling us about that a little bit as well. But uh, it's so good to see some positive things here. I mean, the ideas of uh, handing out the coins at Halloween, I think that was pretty cool. I mean, Halloween was kind of a bummer around here this year. But, uh, you know, anybody know what I can do with five bags of candy? But, um, you know... You have my address. Yeah, I do have your address, too. I'm not sure it'd be in good shape once it got there. But those two <laughs> letters right there, you know, indicate some of the tenants of the hobby that are really, you know, ones that are commendable. And that's the idea of trying to involve individuals into the hobby. And again, this is a case of not expecting them to come to you, but you come to them because they come to your door knocking on, expecting some kind of treat and they got it. And also the idea that, you know, it was still percolating in the back of this individual's mind. And now he's back at it again with a plan, didn't say what he was going to be collecting. And uh, it'd be interesting to see, uh, you know, from 17 years ago, how that worked out. It may not have, it may have, don't know, but that doesn't really matter. It's the thrill of the hunt in a lot of ways. And we all have our own level of understanding what success may be. A full book is always a great way of succeeding. I have one of those now with the quarters, not the state quarters, not the national park quarters, but it's time to get back out there and get a little more serious about going to car washes and putting a $5 bill in the changer. It's um, interesting that you mentioned, though, the giving away for Halloween because there's a guy I'm connected with on Facebook that he, in addition to candy, because, you know, kids, they want the candy. They expect the candy, right? But in addition, he'll give out uh, steel cents and he has a little printed explanation of what it is. And, you know, hey, this is, you know, during World War II and, and here's the coin. I thought, how neat, you know, that to be able to spread the hobby in that way, you plant seeds and, and any farmer can tell you that the um, the ratio of, of the crops that grow versus the seeds that are planted varies, but, you know, not every seed is going to is going to thrive, but some of those are going to take root and, and um, really flourish. So good for those folks who do that. What a neat thing. Anyway, now you have to answer my question from last week, and then I will pose a new one. Uh, last week, because of our interview with Dr. Kraft at the ANS, I asked about who was a famous ANS member that was a benefactor of an award for medallic art. Who was this person, and uh, could you tell me something interesting about him? This is sort of out there. This is esoteric, but it's kind of a tragic story. It is a tragic story. Do you know about whom I'm speaking? Regretfully, no. I am not certain who it might be, and uh, I'm not even going to embarrass myself by even coming close to trying to guess. I, I remember 
it's been a while since we did a story on somebody who received the award. I believe it was a lady in Germany who received the award recently. Yes. But I, I can't recall what the uh, the award was called. You are correct. Jay Sanford Saltis was the gentleman's name, and he died on June 23rd, 1922, so almost 100 years ago. His death was under peculiar circumstances. While in London to attend a meeting of the British Numismatic Society, uh, Saltis was president of both the New York Numismatic Club and the BNS. Saltis accidentally poisoned himself with cyanide. It turns out that he was drinking ginger ale while cleaning coins with cyanide and accidentally got the two containers mixed up. That was a, a tragedy, an avoidable one at that, but several years before his death, he created an endowment, 1913 actually. He actually endowed several other awards for the uh, prizes for the National Academy of Design, the École des Beaux Arts in 1910, the Art Student League, an important figure in American medallic art history uh, who unfortunately met a tragic demise. Uh, he was only, well, he was 69, so wasn't a young pup by any means, but um, who knows what uh, could have developed uh, had he not drank cyanide instead of ginger ale. So uh, that was the question last week. I didn't expect you to get it. It was one of those things that I learned a couple years into my time at Coin World. So you're not there yet, um, but now you know. Yeah, now I do. And uh, because we talk about military and Iraq and all that with Justin, I'm asking this week, Iraq, shortly after the most recent American intervention, uh, almost 20 years ago-ish, Iraq in 2004 issued a series of coins. How many coins did they release and what are the denominations? So I did a similar question for Afghanistan a few weeks back. Now we're talking about Iraq. Flex your muscles, maybe look in the catalog, uh, see what you can find. I don't think Justin talks about this, but you're just going to have to listen. He does mention how uh, you know he was there at a place where things could be acquired timing-wise, but um, he, I don't think he details what was available. So you're going to have to do your homework. Okay. I'm up to the challenge. Listeners out there, uh, that's for you as well. Now, uh, we hope you enjoy the discussion. Really, it's a, and it's wonderful that we're talking about something so important as mental health. And certainly, it's great to see how coins provide an outlet for somebody. And, and it's there's a lesson there for all of us that uh, we can take heart. I know I did and am. Uh, here is our discussion with Private first class, Justin Irvin. CoinWorld is delighted today to be joined by Justin Irvin, who is an up-and-comer in the coin dealer category, and he's a fellow podcaster. Uh, you're going to get to hear his wonderful story, uh, including how he has served the country. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. No, it's great to join you. It's a real, a real pleasure to be able to do this. Hopefully it should be fun. 
I've been connected with you on Facebook for a couple of years now, if not longer. I see you, you're posting stuff. You're, uh, but what really intrigued me was understanding and, and coming to know that you as a young dealer have a rather amazing story into how you got into collecting how, and, and what dealing uh, has done for you. Do you have a particular specialty or area of interest numismatically? I am what I call a variety hunter. One of the things about me uh, that you get to know, at least on the podcast, is that I have PTSD and three brain injuries. And so my attention span sometimes can be very short. And with coins, there's always something new to look at. So there's always something new and shiny, different series. And so I tend to look for the odd item or the variety in a case or something that just isn't priced right and it stands out to me. And it gives me an, an entire thing to go through every show is different. And if you're not just looking for large cents, you know, you don't skip 53 other dealers. I get to see them all and get to look for anything that catches my eye. You kind of treat this like an amusement park where you see all these different rides in there, but you want to ride every one of them, it sounds like. That is correct. So I do have a couple of things I do look for for my personal collection, which are war nickels, uh, generally MS-65, full steps or better. And then I look for some esoteric bullion, which is my favorite series is the Kiwis from the New Zealand post, which is from the, their government. And there's a different picture every year. And the, the Kiwi is a, an endangered species. And I thought it was kind of a fun series to collect and it carries a high premium. So it's, it's fun to have. So how long have you been into numismatics? Okay. Should I just give you the story? Yeah, just start from the, the top. beginning. Perfect. Yeah. All right. So when I was about eight years old, my mom started doing antiques and collectibles. And we'd go to auctions every week looking for different things to buy. And one week, these two books came up that were coin books. And my brain went, coin, mo- coins are worth money? Money's worth money. Uh, I want those books. So at nine years old, I'm pleading with my mother to buy these books. Nobody wants them. They go all the way down to a dollar. I'm still pleading and begging with her. And of course, you know, mom's mom, she's already said no. She's going to say no. And the guy in front of us looked irritated looking back on it. And he just raised up his card, paid the buck, handed me the books, and probably the happiest man on earth on that day. Because now the kid's quiet reading the book behind him. He can go back to doing business. And that's what got me interested in numismatics. I know a lot of people are like, it's my dad, it's my granddad, it's Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts. For me, it was two books at an auction that got me interested. Uh, And then I did that off and on. For the next year, I did it really heavily with my dad. He couldn't keep pocket change in his pocket. Neither could my mother. Drove them kind of crazy. But my dad did start seating in like large cents and some nickels. I didn't know that he was doing this. It didn't dawn on me that pennies were not four times the size of what they are now. (laughs) But, But it was kind of fun to get those. And it was interesting to see the value of that versus a modern penny. And then that kind of fell away uh, due to my parents divorcing. And then I moved to Minnesota shortly, shortly after that. But my mother up here in Minnesota opened an antique shop. And so I kept doing coins as they would come in. My specialty at that time was toys because as a kid, toys sound good. Everybody likes toys. Fast forward a little bit. I did that till I was 21 when I joined the army. Uh, we'll get to the army in a minute. Uh, I'm sure we'll we'll cycle back to that. And then my parents, I got really close to my parents after the army, after I was injured. And so when they passed in 2015 and 2014, respectively, 
I needed a way to connect to them again. And I was having a really hard time focusing on things. I couldn't really keep a job no matter what job I took. It didn't work. Um, I graduated college finally in 2018. It only took me like eight years to do it. And then with a marketing degree from Minnesota State University, Mankato, they're very specific about that. <laughs> I, a friend of mine went there, so I, I've heard that before. <laughs> yes. Like if you leave off the Mankato and people know you went there, they're like, oh no, you went to Mankato. Yeah, I get it. I get it. So after I graduated, I needed a way to connect to my parents. And so I went to my first coin show. I was like, coins are probably a good idea. I don't want to go back to the antique market. It's it's cratered. It's still bad since 2001. I don't really want to do video games or though, that type of stuff because it's very, very much fad-like. And I was like, let's go collect coins. And if I like doing it again, maybe we'll look at anything past that. But at that time, it was just to become a collector. I really started enjoying it because it reminded me of the marketplace that my mom had created with her antique shop. So I got to feel connected to all of the people there right away. They were all very friendly. There was a couple of dealers who were very not friendly, but that seems to be every coin show. And so I just don't deal with them as much, but I enjoyed being there. And about four months later, I was talking to my grandmother and said, Hey, there's this big coin club called the American Numismatic Association. And they've got a dealer class. What do you think about me becoming a coin dealer? And she said, well, I think I'm going to pay for it and you're going to go. And I said, fantastic. And so that's how I got started in being a dealer. Awesome. So uh, can you talk about the time in the military? You said you were 21 when you joined and that was 2004. Yes, I was 21 leaving for the military, which is an unusual age range to go to the military. When my mom opened her store, it ran up until 2004, when I was at the end of my high school career and just after, I was working at her shop full time and living in her house. And nobody at the age of, you know, 19 in 2003 wants to, you know, 20 in 2003 wants to be living in their parents' house. Nobody. Yeah. And it was driving me crazy. My mother was a little overbearing as well. And so I was like, I've got a couple of options. I can go take out $100,000 worth of debt and go to a really nice college. Or I can go to the military, which I really kind of like the idea of. Originally, it was supposed to be the Navy, but the Navy said no. Like the day before I shipped out, that was frustrating. But the Army said yes. So when I joined the Army at 21, it, I know it's kind of an odd time, but it worked for me. It was getting me out of my mother's house. Uh, it got me out of some other situations where I didn't have to take on a lot of debt. And when I joined the Army, I was still really irritated with the Navy I qualified for any job in the army with the exception of nuclear physicist. Uh, They have a test called the ASVAB. That's a percentile test. I scored in the 80th percentile. Hmm. And when they told, they were telling me about all these jobs and I was really frustrated. And then I saw this big dollar sign and a bunch of money sitting next to infantry. I went, well, that sounds like I could see the entire army and everything everybody has to do because everything's connected to the infantry. Let's do that. And the guy sitting in front of me was like, you don't want that job. You, 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 you don't want it. And if I would have listened to him, the job he was pushing for would have been, in my opinion, much worse. At the time, he was pushing me to be a, a drone pilot. And so there's a, you know, infantry drone pilot. They're, you know, both end up with nightmares from different things. Didn't think about it that way at the time, but I'm glad I skipped it in the long run because I know a bunch of those guys and it can be just as rough as being in, in armed combat. 
So then I went to Iraq in 2005 to 2006 to do the first elections. My job was to guard a full bird colonel and a lieutenant colonel as their personal gunner. So to understand what a gunner is, is you take a Humvee, they have the guy who sticks his head out the top. The guy who sticks his head out the top is me. So my job is to secure that colonel at all times. When you're, we're you're the target, the you mean. Oh, you can call it that. You can call me the target. You can call me the proactive defense mechanism, which is the way I like to think about it. If somebody shows teeth, you don't want to mess with them. It's like the guy who's walking down the street who wants to mug somebody sees a guy with a gun on his hip. He's not going to mug him. But the guy who's walking behind him with nothing on him, it's yeah. more likely. Not that it's going to stop him from mugging the first guy, but, you know, you show teeth. And so while I was in Iraq, a couple of things happened. Uh, I had an accident where an overhead power line hit our Humvee. It hit the antennas specifically. My headset had a short in the right ear. And so they have 240 volt electricity in their homes. We don't know what the volts was running through the overhead power line, and we have no clue what the amps are because it wasn't stepped down through a, um, a circuit breaker like they are here, you know, a transformer. And it knocked me out, completely knocked me out. I don't remember it. I apparently broke my M16, pulled the trigger hard enough to break it when it was oh. on safety. Um, and the automatic firearm, the 240 Bravo, which is a f- big machine gun that fires a thousand rounds a minute, started firing bullets for about three seconds. I woke up in a hospital that I'd been to a hundred times before giving purple hearts, um, which was interesting. So I knew I was safe. Everything was good. Uh, The first person I wanted to see was not the Colonel. I really wanted to see the chaplain standing over me because I had a couple of questions, (laughs) but, but of course it's the Colonel who's standing over me, no chaplain for the first time ever. And he stands over me and goes, you're going to be okay. Yeah, I think so. What happened? And then they explained it to me and I was like, oh, okay. Well, that's, uh, all right, whatever. Okay. So when do we go back to work? The one thing that everybody noticed that I didn't right away was that I didn't have a sense of humor anymore. Everything was mechanical. It was training. I had all of my memories, but none of the emotional attachment to them. So it screwed everything up. Um, But two days later, I'm back in a gunner's hatch taking care of the colonels and they love me like everything is by the book. I do everything right. Uh, They fought over me at one point and unfortunately the the full bird lost, which was really weird because normally rank outranks everybody. But in this case, it didn't. And um, from there, uh, there was some other car bombs and things I had to deal with that gave me some gave me the other three three brain injuries. And I've ended up with PTSD afterward, which is all one heck of a journey. I've done 10 plus years of therapy and trying things to forward my life. I went to school, three different schools. The first two, one I ended up in the hospital during uh, because I got so exhausted and couldn't mentally handle it. The second one was collapsing because it's a for-profit school that was not reputable. Thank God I got out of there with no debt. Um... And the third was Minnesota State. So it's it's been a heck of a journey just to get to this point. 
Well, let's uh, just take this time right now to thank you for your service and going above and beyond, certainly, and uh, we do appreciate that. During your time in Iraq, did any of the numismatic stuff kick into your mind about you know trying to acquire any of their currency or anything like that, knowing full well that it's probably not, it's probably uh, frowned upon? Early when I was there at the time, there was a lot of people talking about taking stuff home because it's collector's items. That were, you know, the notes with Saddam Hussein on them or the coinage or, you know, some guys were hunting silver, silver coinage. Uh, when I got injured, which was real early in my tour, so about four months in, everything fell away. That just all, it became just survive each day, do the best you can and be the best soldier. Um, and I personally say I was probably the best gunner in our, in our platoon because if you have two colonels fighting over you and they don't care about anybody else you're probably the best guy there. So I did my job very well, but the stuff that should have been in the periphery just wasn't, it unfortunately fell away. This incident happened, you said about four months in, but you That's ended right. up serving a, a full two years then. So at the time Iraq was our, we got lucky. Our tour was only one year. A lot of people were doing 18 months or two years, but most of the people who were doing those extra long tours were national guard guys. I was full-time army, regular active duty paycheck every month. So you re-upped then? Did you go back to we Iraq? Were you sent elsewhere or what's? I did not re-up. So the first, in 2004, I enlisted for five years. I was supposed to be in until 2009. Okay. I got back from Iraq in 2006. Some signs and symptoms of PTSD showed up and the Mental, I went, I got very lucky with the people that I served with. My first sergeant, or not my first sergeant, my platoon sergeant came up to me one day and he goes, you look a little downtrodden. And I went, what's the, I know the word, but I can't think of the meaning of it. And I'm like, I, what do you mean? And he goes, you look depressed. And I was like, okay. And he's like, maybe you should go down to mental health. And the reason I say that's very lucky is in the infantry specifically, it is frowned upon to go to mental health most of the time. It is one of those things they will try to bury you for. We don't want you. You're broken. Get get out of the way. He was more like, hey, if we can get you fixed, you can keep going. And and I really like Sergeant Stanford for that. He's one of the few people that I really trust in the world uh, in that situation. So went down to mental health. Mental health said probably shouldn't be in the army anymore um, because of the second colonel I worked with. And I'll give you a story that'll that'll give you an idea of why. The second colonel I worked with was Brian Page, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Brian Page. He is one of the smartest men that I've ever met, but is also the most crazy. He was first a sergeant in the United States Army and then became an officer, with, which is what they call a Mustang. Uh, this guy has dual doctorates from MIT, like the MIT. Uh, it's engineering wow. and mathematics. The way he decided to go to Iraq that time is he flipped a quarter. And I, I was like, dude, this is, this is insane. Not even I'm flipping a corner. If they give me a choice, I'm in the rear with the gear personally, you know, little safety. I can do a lot more help for the guys up front if I'm doing something in the rear, but this is, this is kind of how crazy he is. Um, he decided that if he ever saw a car bomb, he just stopped them in the middle of the road, right next to his truck, get out and search it himself. This is not okay. This is not part of standard operating procedure. The security detail is supposed to be doing this. If that blows up and I get put on CNN because of this, I'm going to be very angry. So the first time he does this, I stop him and I go, look, 
I'm going to be very, I'm going to be very straightforward with the Colonel. If you ever do this again, I'm going to pull my rifle on you and tell you to get back in the truck. I am not getting put on, on CNN for this. He laughs, he laughs and goes, okay, I can, I can make that deal. So the next time he got out, I just pulled the rifle and he went, oh, oh yeah. All right. We'll let the other guys secure it and figure out what's going on. And I was like, yes, you smartened up. All right. How's it feel to be a conscience of a superior? I mean, uh, it, it was kind of fun. The reason why I could do this and many soldiers will tell you that they have a hard time dealing with officers is the first time I walked up to either Colonel, I went, I, I walked up to them and my thought was we are two men standing here. We just have different symbols on our chest. So we're equals as long as rank doesn't matter. And when rank matters, it's a whole different ball game. You know, if you're out in the field, Rank's going to matter, but if it's a safety concern, I'm your security detail guy. You need to listen to me. It's my job to keep you safe. So I had a working relationship with them where I could joke about them or I could tease them or I, you know, I could do things that an average soldier couldn't because I treated them like a person instead of a very high pedestal figure. That's kind of like what, you know, celebrities, sometimes they want to be treated just like regular people. And I would I assume high ranking military officials can be that way, too. This guy sounded yep. like he was a definite uh, he was cut definitely different than a lot of the ones I've had in, any familiarity with. So right. appreciate you sharing that story. Yeah, no right problem. There. That really sets the background. Yes. There's one little story with Brian Page to make this come into complete context for how how brilliant and crazy he was at the same time. We pulled up one day and the rule is you're supposed to stay 300 meters away from any suspected improvised explosive device, IED. And you're supposed to coordinate off and make sure nobody goes by it. Well, I'm smart enough that I know that the odds of somebody being there to pull the trigger are practically like 2%. So does he. And he decides to get out of the truck and start sprinting towards the bomb and rip the antenna off. And I was like, uh, I can't what do I do here? I mean, if I shoot him, I go to, I go to prison, but he doesn't blow up, but I could end up on CNN if he grabs it and it explodes. And then they're going to ask me why I didn't stop him. And then we're going to have a, uh, uh, Oh, so he caught me in the one time where I couldn't make that threat. He was already sprinting towards it. That is not supposed to happen ever. A Colonel is not supposed to take that big a risk. They're very, a very rare commodity compared to like me where I was an E3, a private first class. So with all the risk that you had to take in those circumstances, it would seem like, you know, you can stare down a risk in this numismatic uh, situation pretty easily now. I mean, uh, God forbid somebody tries to pull a counterfeit on you. (laughs) Uh, I've been asked, what do I do if somebody pulls a firearm on me? I'm going to go with the standard, you know, maybe you give them the items. You know, if you've got them hidden on your person, maybe give them what's available. You know, you don't have to be like, oh, I've got one hidden in my shoe, you know, but if they're going to check your pockets and stuff, just give them everything. Let them go. What the army teaches you to do is if somebody pulls a firearm on you, you need to attack them as fast as possible, whether you've got a firearm or not. And that's because if you move, it'll surprise them long enough that if they're within 15 to 20 feet, you'll be able to tackle them before they have a chance to react. That does not guarantee you any safety whatsoever. It is it is still dangerous to do. But I would rather go with the better part of I'm going to be alive tomorrow. Here's my stuff. I yeah. don't want to deal with it. So I have to say, you know, I have 
family members and all that. Nobody in my immediate sphere has served. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, my, I don't know oh, the language oh. and I don't, you know, uh, really have that imbued in my marrow, sure. like so many folks. Uh, but I can, I can appreciate and thank you for the sacrifice and what that means because hearing you talk about how life out of the army, the challenges therein, it brings it home. But then I love that the hobby has provided an outlet for you, you know, to be self-supporting and to be engaged in society. Can you talk about, you know, your, you mentioned earlier coming back to the hobby and, you know, your parents were gone and, you know, you were on your own. What was the, the first realization that, oh, this could this could be the thing. This is what I need to sort of unlock the future. Okay. So I'm glad you brought that up. The purpose for me, I'm just going to give you the per- overall purpose first. The purpose for me, when I decided to become a coin dealer after my grandmother decided to pay for the course was very simple. I wanted to work my way off of disability. I'm not there yet. I'm working on it, but it's the goal. Uh, nobody I I don't care what any talking head on TV says. Nobody wants to be collecting a check from the government to sustain their life. It's not something that's a positive thing. You, you get a very low self-worth doing that. Trust me. I've tried. (laughs) Even with the understanding that somebody like you has in a sense earned it with the service to the country. I mean, you know, you did what you were asked to do or told to do in a sense and and agreed to do. But the other end of that bargain are the other end of that bargain was, you know, we're going to ask you to do this, but we're going to make sure that you're taken care of. Correct. The VA will pay me for life regardless. Social security is something I prefer not to have. Even, even though I qualify for it, I prefer to make enough money to just not even need it is the statement here. So anyways, back to what brought drew me in. So I decided to become a coin dealer and I knew that there was one thing that was different about me than everybody else I was going to meet that wants to become a coin dealer. Most people are of a, a of an older age or have somebody in their sphere that is already a dealer. So they have some sort of backup. I'm a lone guy with about a thousand dollars. That's what I had as my starting amount of money. And one of the local dealers here who I really trust and I still work with, and he's a mentor to me, um, his name's Andrew Swamy. And he looked at me one day when I was at his coin show for about the 50th time. And well, it wasn't the 50th time. It's a monthly show. So it was probably the 20th time and looked at me and I was telling him like, I want to become a coin dealer. I'm going to go take this class. And he looks at me and he goes, Hey, uh, you see the red trays over there with the two by twos? And he's, and I was like, yes. And he goes, go pick out as much as you want. I'll tell you what I need out of it. You said you've done eBay previously. Can you do eBay for me? And I said, this is a thing. Sure. Absolutely. Let's do it. So he got, he got me started with enough stock to be able to run an eBay store and work my way on that way. And then I went to other dealers because it dawned on me if he's looking for eBay services and he's in his 50 to 50 age range that other dealers that that are at these shows are between 50 and 70. I'm going to bet that some of them also need internet services, but don't want to deal with it or don't have the time to deal with it. Or they'd rather spend the time with their kids on a lake or grandkids. And that turned out to be true. So I was pulling enough money in that at least I could start to build a role. And it was, it's small because you're working on like a 10% margin, five to 10% margin after all of the fees and things included in eBay. Yeah. And so it slowly rolled, but it, and it, it did work. Uh, the other big mentor for me was uh, the 
former ANA president, Steve Ellsworth, Colonel Ellsworth, who's a little nuts, but I love him for it. Every Colonel's a little crazy in some way. If you meet him, you know what I'm talking about. He is just a little, little out there. When I took his class, I got to ask a lot of questions and find a lot of things. And what I found out by going back and contacting the people that were in that class with me, which, which is a really great class. If you get a chance to take the dealer class, at the NA, I highly recommend it. Um, that approximately 80% of the class was no longer dealing coins. They had done one of two things. They either decided they didn't really like to do it as a dealer, which happens to a lot of collectors who become dealers or they had done like a buddy of mine did ran in when a, their job failed, ran in with their entire retirement account, bought a ton of stuff, still buying as a collector more than a dealer and then tried to resell it and found out they were spending, you know, $11,000 and getting, you know, 10,000 back. And it's a transition. And I'm glad I did it the other way where I had a very small amount of money and have had to build over time. You get to know what's worth what, and you can't make those giant $10,000 mistakes if you don't have it. It ends up being a couple hundred or, you know, at worst a thousand. Now, notwithstanding the situation, as far as the money side of it goes, sure. There is a little bit of, there has to be a little bit of a disconnect in understanding, as you pointed out here, that if you have the mindset of being a collector, becoming a dealer and not differentiating between the two, you're probably going to run into problems. Did you find that to be the case when you transitioned to a dealer? I made a very simple decision. I was no longer allowed to collect. Everything had to be for sale one way or another. So if it was bought with store money, it has to be a store item. If it's bought with personal money, which I have a completely separate account for, it, it's fine. I can add it to my collection. Like my Kiwis, I all buy with personal money. My war nickels, I've all bought with personal money. That way I can't ever go, you know, stand at a, a, um, a show and go, I'd really like this. And I have two grand in my bank or in my business bank account. Let me spend 1800 on it. It'll be personal and put on my wall. Well, now that 1800 has gone, I can't reinvest it anymore. I can't buy yeah. more stock. I can't go meet Jeff in, you know, in St. Louis and, and talk coins with him for a few minutes and then go shopping. You know, I can't do any of that stuff if I keep burning the cash out of the business bank account. And that was a very simple decision that has saved me a lot. The other thing I had decided is I can have very small collections or very specific collections. So like war nickels and, and Kiwis. And when you do that, you don't see them all the time. Or if you do like with, like with war nickels, there are certain dates that are harder to get and you're going to have to save for them. It makes things a lot easier than a lot of people go in going, I, anything that's worth more than what I'm spending on it, you know, is what I need to buy. Oh, but I really like this. This one can go out of the pile. Well, now you've killed your profit margin. That's what happens. Yeah. You, you've taken that war chest and diminished it and pardon the pun, uh, but you know, you, you <laughs> don't want to, you got to save your bullets as they say. So that's right. <laughs> One shot, one kill, you know, one, one dollar, one coin, you know, make your money work for you instead of, you know, if there are some dealers out there who do, do this part time where their goal is to just keep advancing their collection. So I get that aspect, but if you're doing it as a business, it needs to really be a business. I keep joking or, you know, talking to people about this, that, you know, fun is not a business model. You know, you can have fun, but, you know, uh, my friend of mine who's we've had on the podcast, Don Norris, he, he he joked that what's the difference between two large pizzas and a coin dealer? He said two large pizzas can feed a, a family of four. 
<laughs> and and I go, well, obviously there are plenty of folks who are doing this as as making a, a good living, but you know the point is well taken, and it dovetails nicely with your the last some of the lessons you've learned. Right. Now, so you host Learning to Deal podcast, and that That's looks correct. to be about three to four or five times a, a month. Yep. Um, you've been doing it for about 15, 16 months now, it That's looks. Correct. At what point in the dealer journey were you when you started? A couple years in, three years in? Interesting enough, it was about a year and a half in. Okay. So I was talking to Mike Nottleman and Matt Dinger from The Coin Show, and they were looking for people to help behind the scenes. And so I, I'm an idea guy. I'm really good at ideas. I'm not always good at implementing them, but I'm good at them. And they needed some help behind the scenes coming up with ideas and helping with some of their some of their listeners and doing some moderation stuff for Facebook. And eventually one day I went, you know, I've been thinking about doing this podcast where I talk about my journey and talk about the PTSD symptoms I go through and talk about how to become a dealer, partially because you hear so many collectors go, well, I could become a dealer. It can't be that hard. And partially because I know there's a lot of veterans out there that collect coins who also have issues. There's several that have reached out to me since I've started the podcast going, yeah, oh yeah, I found coins to be able to slow the, the world down. That's got to be rewarding. It is. It is very rewarding. The one thing that that has come up on the podcast multiple times that works really well for veterans or even people with stress in general, I talk very much about shrinking your world down. If you're stressed out and the world's too much for you, if you're at a coin show, you can shrink your world down all the way to a dealer, a coin and a table and yourself. That's it. There's nothing else. It doesn't matter if there's 50 people to your right or left. It's just you and the dealer. You're, you're, you're trying to get the coin, the coins, your target talking with the dealer. And I use that when I have PTSD episodes at coin shows, I just go find a coin I really like, or really would like to work with or buy. And I just shrink my world down that far. And if it's a dealer I've worked with before, it helps me through it. And I thought that was a, a great thing to talk about for a podcast. And it can be a reoccurring thing because stress is something we all deal with. I also wanted to work through what it actually takes to become a dealer. What are the ways to do it? Uh, what does it really take? Do you need that $50,000 a lot of people think you need to walk in the door with? Or can you walk in with a bunch of common date stuff you've collected and just set up a table at a small show? Where do you get the things from? They're, these are all questions that people don't think about when they're like, oh yeah, I could do this tomorrow. Could you? Would you? Where Where would you start? What would yeah. you do? What are some of the biggest, the hardest lessons to learn? For me, the biggest lesson was being disciplined with, with money. You know, you don't always want to jump at everything that has a profit margin. So if you buy something that's a dollar and you get a dollar and a nickel for it, when you're selling online, the fees will eat it and it'll be gone. You have to keep in mind that what you're going to have to spend to sell the item. If you're doing it, like I'm, a, I'm an online dealer. I don't do any shows. I've tried being on the other side of the table. It, it doesn't work for my body and it stresses me out too much, but I can do it online. I can go to shows and talk to people. Uh, anyways, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that that's Catch good to know what. Second. What works? I mean, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's everybody, there's all different models, right? And that's your model. So, so you, but you need to keep in mind that even if you're setting up a table, part of that's going to go, part of the money you make is going to go to paying for the table, transportation, gas, all that stuff. And a lot of people go, but I bought something for $10. It's going to be 11. Well, how many did you buy? 
Well, one, how far did you drive? 50 miles. So you can't even cover your gas cost. You really lost money on that. And for me, I didn't completely realize that until I went to my first A&A, which was the last one in Anaheim, California. And when I went to the first one there, when I got home, I wasn't quite a dealer yet. I was still very much in the collector collector realm, but I thought I had bought enough stuff to offset it where if I sold it all, because that was kind of my mindset since I was a kid, that it, you know, it would cover the trip. And then I looked at everything and it wouldn't. There was an exception to this though. At that World's Fair of Money, I went to the PNG dealer days where they still had the three-day buildup. Mm-hmm. And I had won a, in their drawing, I got the $20 Gold Liberty, which paid for the trip by itself. But without that, just the buying and selling, just the buying aspect would not have covered the trip. So I had to take into account a lot more things uh, than I had thought about. And certainly luck factors in for some dealers in as much as, you know, uh, somebody walks up to your table with something that they very well could have walked up to somebody else's table. Not that, you know, you don't have a table, but you understand. So you had that, but you can't count on every show having that same luck. You have to, (laughs) you have to be able to capitalize on what you have that you can sort of control. If you can walk into every major show and get a $20 Liberty for free, you're either the luckiest person on earth and you need to go to every major show possible or you're stealing it. And I don't like I, the second one. I don't like, and I don't like chance much either. So yeah. knowledge is key. And that's where I created what my hook segment, every, every podcast has kind of a hook. You guys use an interview in the magazine for me. I had to come up with something every, you know, if you don't, it doesn't pull people back. My hook that I created was, is called enhancing your collection. The purpose of it is to give you the ability as a collector or even as a dealer to be able to look for a coin to add to either your collection or inventory to add value. And for a collector, that means you could save it. You could turn it in, you know, you know, you could, let me, let me slow myself down here. My brain's doing six things at once. Uh, You can save it as extra value for later. You can save it in a group of coins where maybe you trade for a bucket list coin, which is which is a great thing to do. I mean, if you paid $50 for five coins for five different varieties that equal to 50, you know, $250 is a good chunk out of say an AG3 1916D Mercury dime. And so every episode it's a different coin. Sometimes it's a technique or a book. Sometimes the book is worth worth its weight in information. I did have a listener reach out a couple of weeks ago who argued with me on this of whether or not this could actually be done where you could buy a coin and sell it or, or trade up and get a bigger coin. And I thought, all right, this, this is the red paperclip challenge basically. And you know, the snowball. Yes. (laughs) This is basically the red paperclip challenge. Yes. So I said, all right, challenge accepted. Give me a, give me a day or two. So I came up with enhancing your collection challenge. And the idea is, is to take a small starting amount of money and build it up to a very expensive coin. And the starting amount of money is $300. It's 1% of the coin value that I'm looking to buy. So I wanted to make sure it was very, I didn't want to start with like 10 grand because that that's no fun, something small. And through market knowledge and varieties, build that 300 over two years to roughly about 30 to $40,000 to buy my top bucket list coin, which is a 1792 half dime. 
I mean, if you're going to go for a storied coin and a legendary coin as your top of your bucket list and you have this challenge, you might as well make it that coin. There's there's mm-hmm. no point in making it any other coin. It's all self-contained, so I can't add any more money. I can't pull things out of my personal collection or my inventory and be like, yep, I made it over the finish line. It has to be self-contained. Everything is documented through posts, videos, and pictures to make sure that the listeners are all caught up with what's coming in and what's going out. And that way, if I don't make it, but I'm almost certain I can, if I don't make it, it can still show you where you can end up. I mean, if I end up at fifteen to twenty thousand dollars instead of thirty, that's still a heck of an accomplishment. So, but I'm I'm almost certain I can do it. I've done the math. I've done done some other things to look at it to really examine what would be possible. And I think I can this do reminds it. me of the uh, the thing that I've heard about incrementalism and and you know a one percent. If you're 1% better every day over the course of a year, you get 37 times better. Um, so you right. need to have a, a, a high velocity of, of sale, you know, buy it, sell it, buy it, sell it real quick. You know, it's not anything you're right. buying and holding. No. So where are you, when did this begin and, and in what phase are you at? So you started with $300. Absolutely. I started with $300 on the 3rd of November. So it's less than a week ago. It's six days yes. ago. At Coinax. Yes. So far, I've purchased two coins. I purchased a 1917 triple dot, excuse me, wrong year, 1970, whole different ballgame, 1970 triple die obverse proof, M- proof 67 Lincoln cent, which has an approximate value of four to $500. And I got it for 175 and a 1911 San Francisco Philippine Centavo. That's an S over S. I paid about $30 for it. Uh, It's got to actually get sent out to be verified. As long as it comes back, it'll be a several hundred dollar coin as well, which is a nice start on on top of what I've got. And then I've still got roughly $65 left over or so. Awesome. So this is great. I I saw the E- YCC or whatever, the Enhancer Coin Collection yes. or Enhancer Collection Challenge. Uh, yep. So obviously you do the Learning to Deal podcast and you have Correct. a Facebook group to follow this. Uh, for anyone who wants to track your journey uh, going forward, how can they stay in touch and, and keep tabs on it? Absolutely. The best way to find the Learning to Deal podcast is to go on to iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and just search the Learning to Deal podcast. It'll be a little red, white, and blue symbol with a pair of military boots in it that says Learning to Deal, Coins and Currency. Another way to connect is I have a Facebook group called Students of the Learning to Deal podcast, and you can go on Facebook, search that. We'll come up right at the top. There is a page for the podcast itself on Facebook. That Facebook group is uh, Students of Learning to Deal. That students is Students of the Learning to Deal podcast. That is correct. Well, very good. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time today to, to share your journey and talk about how coins have really uh, you know, been an outlet for you in your uh, post-military time. And um, you know, hope to see you at another show down the road. Certainly, um, there's a couple big shows in St. Louis every year, and we'll look at uh, you know, maybe the A&A and some others. But what a neat story, and I 
be interesting to be, I'm ho- hoping to see some some neat things big things from this uh, enhance uh, your collection challenge yep me too I appreciate it guys thanks so much absolutely that was our interview with Justin Irvin who learning to deal podcast and uh, somebody who is frank and forthright about the mental health challenges and we appreciate him taking the time with us and and being open and honest and sharing his journey because it uh, is so important. It was only after hearing him and then listening to the podcast that it really dawned on me. Sometimes I'm a slow learner, but the idea that the title of it, Learning to Deal, it has more than just the concept of dealing as a coin dealer, but dealing with what life has to show. And by listening to the episodes and the challenges that he was facing in this particular episode and, uh, you know, things that really, one of the things that came to mind from the interview to me was when he talked about shrinking down your world uh-huh. and it just become, that was an aha moment as well is that just that when you can tune out what's going on around you, I know professional bowlers say they don't hear the noise going on around them when they're on the lane on the approach but just the idea of getting and narrowed down to one dealer, one table, one coin type thing. There's so many times in life that if we just stop, slow it down, put it down into that full focus right there, then we can come out with a happier ending sometimes, I think. And that's that. there's a lot of good advice in that interview. And that's the one point that I'm going to take away and try to implement a little more often in my life. Yes, yes, it was... Um... So, like I say, so important for people to hear that. So we thank you for listening. We thank Coin World Plus for sponsoring. And, uh, you know, I thank those folks who walked up at the show and said, hey, I recognize you from the podcast. This is a great uh, little group of folks that uh, join us every week. Hope to continue to serve you and share, hear your story and share these stories when we come across them because uh, it gives us hope and it gives us meaning as well every day. Truly that, as uh, we appreciate that and look forward to uh, hearing from you. Feel free to reach out to us and uh, let us know what your thoughts, let us uh, hear your suggestions and your comments. We're glad to have you along for this ride. But in the meantime, until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Coin World Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about Coin World Plus at coinworldplus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.